When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Coming up on the Mark Devine Show. I never thought my stepfather could kill me. I mean, I knew he could physically beat me to death, but he could never kill me. And it would frustrate him into more beatings and more beatings and more beatings because I would never quit. I would never surrender. But that never quit and never surrender was now I know what it was. It was that light inside of me that was, you know, I'm here for a purpose. You can't beat me. You can kill me, but you'll never beat me. Welcome to the Mark Devine Show. This is your host, Mark Devine. I'm super stoked to have you here. I appreciate it. Don't take it lightly. I love to talk to folks from all walks of life on this show, martial arts grandmasters, high-powered CEOs, stoic philosophers, and veterans who are on the leading edge of helping people heal from post-traumatic stress and overcome suicidal tendencies. So today we're going to talk to D. Paul Fleming, who's a retired, disabled U.S. Navy veteran. He's a life coach and He's an author. His book, 2,442 Steps to Crazy, and a follow-on, which he calls The Crazy Series, is a story about personal transformation and overcoming childhood abuse and trauma at the hands of a tyrannical family member. D. Paul Fleming's mission now is to advocate for veterans and help them heal from trauma, post-traumatic stress, and that childhood abuse. He's been married for four decades. He's raised six children and enjoys nine grandchildren. D. Paul Fleming, who goes by Doug, joins us today. Doug, thank you for joining me on the Mark Devine Show. Doug, so stoked to have you here on the Mark Devine Show. Appreciate you joining me today. Hey, Mark. It's great to be with you. Where are you right now? I love your background, by the way. Super patriotic. You got the 13 colonies. You got the other full American flag. You're right. Presidential seal. You got the eagle. A couple of the uh, folded flags from some uh, funerals. My, My grandfather landed on a beach in Normandy. No kidding. Oh, yeah. My other grandfather wow. rode submarines out of the Pacific, uh, had half a dozen combat patrols and, and submarines in the Pacific. That's incredible. My wife's father, her flag is here. He was a Marine. What was it like growing up in the, you know, kind of the, the shadow of that? And what were some of your um, origin challenges, origin story things that shaped who you are? Well, I didn't find out about either of my grandfathers until after I was in the military. Well, I knew both grandfathers were in the military, but I'd never met my mother's, my biological grandfather, which is a story in and of itself. Native American who jumped reservation, claimed to be white and spent 30 years in the military. Wow. Back when a, a Native American would be nothing but a cook or a steward, you know, just like blacks and others that were right. um, segregated in, in that time. I had a pretty unflattering upbringing. I learned a lot about that history post my entrance into the military. And then I really warmed up to my grandfather who was on the beach in Normandy, but um, he was a great inspiration in my life. You know, he was a a light tower, so to speak, that I could constantly come back to and say, he said, hang in there, it gets better. So you knew him? I mean, you had a relationship with him? I did. Probably my favorite relative growing up. So unflattering. Do you want to go deeper into that? Well, I wrote a book on it, Mark. 2,442 Steps to Crazy. What a cool title. Thank you. I wrote that book not because I wanted to tell 
my start. It's the last thing I wanted to do. But I have a deep faith, deeply religious, in my own way. I don't spend much time talking to others about it unless we want to talk about those things. But my faith kept pushing me into telling my story. My thoughts were always, who the hell would want to read this crap? <laughs> and, you know, I struggled. I had a come to Jesus moment in order to get that thing written and then publish it. And then I got to tell you, it has and continues to help a tremendous amount of people overcome their own struggles and find a starting point to move forward. First of all, what is the title reference, the 2442 steps? What does that mean? The steps for me, it was, and it became kind of a motto in my life where that first step was always the hardest. Everybody knows that the first step is always the hardest. But for me, going back to the house that I was raised in, that was always a tough first step. So what I used to do is I used to count the steps from wherever I was to that side door when I would go into that house. And the book, 2,442 Steps, is about a starting point and getting to that end point, the point of no return, so to speak, at that side door and entering into the world of insanity and crazy. And that's kind of where I, where I pulled the name from, the title. Oh, that's cool. So that's so you made a choice to kind of go back and confront the the demons of your past by going back to your, your childhood home that kind of unlocked all the memories or, or helped you deal with the, the challenges? Not so much physically going back because I'm actually, you know, 10 miles from that house now. Okay. So it's a metaphor for your, your childhood trauma. Yeah, it is. It is. It, it, and it, uh, the reality is the 2,442 steps is from the high school that I was in to that particular door. I would count every step that I would take. It's a way to try to deflect that anxiety that you know builds if you focus too far out. You're always trying to focus. And when you're trying to get through something that's tough, focus on every moment. And, you know, they all add up. In this case, the 2,442 steps to that door. So what happened on the other side of that door? Well, I never used the word terrorized until I finished the book, published it, handed it to my wife. Now, as I say, my wife and I, we've been married for 50 years. <laughs> Greatest woman on the planet. And I mean that from my heart. She really is. She is my soulmate. Um, when I handed her the book, you know, it was the first time I'd ever opened my mouth to anybody about my childhood. You hadn't communicated to her about it? Never said a word. Oh, my gosh. Interesting. We have wow. six kids. You know, now I have nine grandchildren. I never said a word to anybody. No friends, no military, nothing. Never said a word. So she sat down and read the book. You know, she cried and cried and cried and apologized a few times. You know, she's like, oh, I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> I get it. But um, she said, you were brutalized. You were terrorized. The stuff that was done to you is inhuman. And then she says, now I understand. You know, it's a big statement based on a lot of decades together, you know, where a lot of pieces started falling in when somebody is able to hear your story. And for me, it became a moment where I had hit the top of the hill. Now, now it's all out there. Not, not all of it, but those particular years are out there. I understand why the spiritual piece kept pushing me to tell this story. And at the end of the day, it's telling my story to help others tell their story. Because it's so easy to suppress that stuff or to push it off or to think it's no big deal or it's such a big deal I can't share it. So there's a lot of ways that can play out. 
So they don't share. And if you don't share, then the energy stays with you. It builds and builds and builds. Why did you wait so long? Is, was there a part of you that could have or wanted to tell the story or even be honest with yourself earlier in your life? Yeah. There's a number of words I could use to answer that. It's not so much fear or embarrassment, but everybody's got it tougher than you. And I've never complained about, I'm a 100% disabled vet. You'll never hear me complain. You know, I'll have some words to say about the VA, but that's a whole other matter. <laughs> I've never complained. Same thing with my childhood. I never complained. You know, you look around and somebody's always got it different. You know, somebody over there is missing an arm, missing a leg. Somebody's got it different. You know, kids didn't make it. Kids that get killed as kids. And I just didn't want to talk about it. And I always felt that there was, there was reasons behind it, but I could never identify why I, I wouldn't talk about it until I wrote the book. Then when I wrote the book, and started listening to people's input, and I started look, leaning back and saying, holy crap, I was brutalized. Holy crap, that is pretty horrific. Holy crap, that, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So I had a combination of not talking about it and suppressed it so deeply that um, it took writing the book for a lot of this to kind of come back. And then I got to tell you, Mark, um, the release is so powerful mm -hmm. that, um, you know, the VA's got me rated at 70% PTSD. Hey, let's go back and see if I'm fixed, right? Mm -hmm. Let's reevaluate. Maybe I released enough to not be 70%. I say that kind of tongue in cheek, mm -hmm. but um, I can feel the pain, you know, the pressure. It's not there the way it was prior to telling my story. I have a theory, and it started with a conversation from a friend of mine named Josh Mance, who was actually technically killed in combat. He was dead for 15 minutes. And his corpsman, you know, against all the odds and, and also against the, the doctor's wishes, just kept working on him. You know, it's one of those spiritual things, just wouldn't stop CPR. And suddenly Josh comes back. It'd be great if it was like a happy ending, but it wasn't because like this guy's post-medic stress, once he got physically healed, almost killed him, right? And what he said is that it wasn't the getting killed in combat, it was childhood trauma that got magnified and suddenly was being expressed in ways that he couldn't control because he had formally suppressed it all. So that death experience just allowed all that stuff to come to the surface. And he spent 10 years going through this incredibly intense period of, of trauma and recovery. And so we were talking about this and I said, well, how many veterans do you think who are experiencing post-traumatic stress, their trauma is actually childhood trauma that then, then gets triggered or piled onto or somehow combat kind of opens up the opportunity to finally feel those emotions. And, and it's just awful if they don't have a skillful means or therapy or, you know, and then the VA, you know, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole yet either, but then, and then the VA just makes it utterly worse by doping them up on whatever drug du jour, which then kind of blocks all that stuff again. And Makes it worse. Anyways, so that's my question. I, I kind of turned my question to a mini lecture, but <laughs> I apologize for that. So how many, do you think that post-traumatic stress is kind of a, I think the term is complex post-traumatic stress, really is a lot of childhood trauma being expressed, not just combat stress? Yeah, I, I think you need to bottle what you just said, and we need to get it out into, mm. into the veteran community, word for word. What you just said is absolutely spot on, and um, it didn't really start dawning on me until Maria Wren posted a review on um, Amazon. And in it, it says, you know, she's handed this book out to a lot of vets, and the psychological system has been trying to get 
vets to talk about their childhood specifically because of what, what you just said. And the military attracts, this is again a guess that I'm making, but it's based upon my observation that the military attracts individuals who have a, a lot of trauma in their childhood because they want, they need the structure. You are absolutely spot on. Yeah. I can't tell you how many people who have read the book said exactly what you just said in different words. Right. But it was like they knew at a very young age, like I did. You know, I think the first time I remember saying, I'm going in the military, I think it was 10 or 11. And a lot of people have, have said the, the same thing. Do we need to get into any details of what happened in that house? The only reason I bring it up again is because some people think that some traumas are worse than others. Like sexual assault is worse than just emotional, verbal emotional abuse or even physical abuse. I'm not sure about that. I think all abuse is awful and needs to be dealt with. Do you feel a need to kind of talk about any of the specifics? So my position on trauma is that no person should judge another person's trauma. Yes. There should never be a scale or a graph. Trauma does not discriminate. Trauma is trauma. Trauma to a person is trauma. Their trauma may not be, may not feel like trauma to me, and my traumas may not be trauma to somebody else. Mm -hmm. But what it does to you physically and mentally, from my experience, can only be gauged by that individual. I've got a, a son-in-law. He's, you know, combat vet, suffering, I mean, a classic trail. And we're here working in the garden one day, and he, he just, the emotional toll just collapsed on him almost out of the blue, and he's losing it because he can't understand why he feels this intense measure of a roller coaster of emotions from anger to hate to fear to, and we're working in the garden. It was a great day, a great environment. Right. So what trauma can you associate with it? Where do you put that on a scale? So I, I used the one in boot camp. When I was in boot camp, man, there was a walk in the park. Guy tried committing suicide in boot camp. Couldn't take the yelling. So trauma belongs in the eyes of the person who suffered it. And nobody, in, again, in my opinion, nobody should weigh or judge the level of trauma. Trauma's trauma. It's up to the individual to determine how severe. I got to tell you, you got some great insights into this. <laughs> yeah, the insight that is kind of like percolating in my pea brain right now. I'm not even sure I should say, but like, because not, not everyone's going to agree with it. But like, I, my spiritual background says that we kind of choose our conditions. We choose our parents based upon growth that our spirit is seeking in this incarnation. And so therefore, the most spiritually advanced people are the ones who have the most trauma in their lives. And so, therefore, they have a lot of grit and a lot of strength, a lot of resiliency and humility because they have to deal with that. And so, the quicker you get to that spiritual truth that, oh, I'm not a victim here, actually, in the most spiritual sense. I am, I am a, a victim as a, a small child, you know, where I didn't have really any resources. But when it comes to the spiritual perspective, you're not a victim. Talk about the total releasement. That's a total releasement. So, everything you're saying? Um, Ass deep in absolute belief. <laughs> in, you know, the, the hard healing of the last seven years. The last seven years is when I really started to heal and take this journey. In doing it, in my spiritual side, I had to sit there and listen to people tell me, no, 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 you, you picked your parents, you picked this path. If you want to blame somebody, don't blame God, blame yourself. You know, I went through the, yeah, I'm angry at God and all that for a long time. And it never really made sense. 
until I started, you know, following my, I call it my Native Americanism and my spiritual belief and all that. And as I kept walking that path and reading and studying and getting around people, it just started to resonate more and more with me. So nobody's going to tell me differently exactly what you just said. I firmly believe it. Once I absorbed that, Mark, again, it was like a release point. Now the pieces started lining up. I was able to start addressing the why, because the why is what always makes you crazy, right? When it comes to optimizing your health and longevity, managing your stress is key. So is exercising. So is nutrition. But I tell you what, if your sleep isn't dialed in, none of those will matter. Sleep is the granddaddy of all the hacks for optimal health and longevity. You've got to get great sleep. If you're not getting great sleep, sometimes an intervention will help. And I don't mean a pharmacological one. I mean a natural intervention. There are some phenomenal sleep supplements out there, and Momentus' sleep back is the best. The science behind Momentus is second to none. Your combination of ingredients helps me go to sleep really quickly, helps me stay asleep longer, and to wake up with that super good night sleep feeling where I'm feeling motivated and optimistic. Rarely do I feel that when I don't get a great night's sleep. I feel it when I use Momentus' sleep pack. Their sleep pack is a 30-day supply, super easy to use, tearaway packs featuring the three natural ingredients that prime you for a good night's rest. They're designed by the world's leading experts in sleep. They're used by the world's best teams and athletes, including Navy SEALs, but they're made for all of us. Go check them out at www.livemomentous.com. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com. Use the code DIVINE at checkout for 20% off your order. That's livemomentous.com. Use the code DIVINE, D-I-V-I-N-E. You know, with my training at Seal Fit and Unbeatable, I'm outside a lot and often in the ocean or on the beach or generally outside in the rain. And I love it. But footwear has always been a pain. So I, generally, I would bring a pair of boots and just kind of change the boots and then change out of them when they're all soggy and wet and go from there. Then I discovered Vessi. I first got it thinking the waterproof feature was what I would use. And then similar to changing out of the boots, I would change out of the Vessis after being in that water, after being in that ocean we just change out of the vessies after being on the beach or in the ocean. But it turns out I actually wear my vessies all the time now. I've got them on right now. They're beautiful sneakers, super comfortable, very attractive. It's almost like the waterproof feature is secondary at this point. These are great, great sneakers. You got to check them out. One pair of sneakers can redefine your entire experience with sneakers. It can be your daily go-to, also your weekend adventure, and uh, don't worry about the rain. They got you covered. So if you want to be ready for anything, rain or shine, but you also want to look good and have the perfect travel shoe, then go check out Vessi, Vessi.com slash divine. That's V-E-S-S-I.com slash divine, D-I-V-I-N-E. Head there to get yourself a pair today. You can get 15% off your order using the code divine, D-I-V-I-N-E. Again, go to Vessi.com slash divine. Use the code divine to get 15% off. The reality is there is no cause and effect. Everything happens because everything happens. It's an infinite number of inputs. I agree. I have an adopted son, and he's like 25% Hawaiian, 12.5% Cheyenne Arapaho, or either Cheyenne or I think the Cheyenne Arapaho are close related. So he's a Native American. And I was very inspired by the Native American tradition. I've been to Tom Brown's tracker school where you know he was trained by an Apache scout. And so I, I did a number of trainings uh, in that Apache tradition and their spirituality. You know, of course, 
all natives and indigenous tribes have very similar philosophies, right? What the Westerners, if you studied from an academic perspective, they would call it religion. But you and I would just call it spirituality. They believed in grandfather is the spirit that runs through all things. That's God. And so that God or the spirit that runs through all things is in us and is us, is the background or the source or the reason for our existence. And that to move closer to that through ritual, you know, through prayer, through dance, through cleansing the body with sweat lodges and vision quests and clarifying your understanding about why you're on this planet through the vision quest process. And, and also what I found profound is the, the rite of passage, you know, that they put uh, youth through, both male and female, before they kind of entered the adult ranks. All of that is just so extraordinarily powerful and, and useful. And yet we've gotten so far away from it in the Western world. The Western world is almost the complete opposite. I just want to hear your take on it because you're, you're Native American, uh, at least, you know, partial in your heritage. So what's your spiritual practice and, and what's your take on the Native spirituality? So everything, again, that you just said, I believe in all of that. I also believe in the baby Jesus. If you take the Bible and you take Native American historical belief in spirituality, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, okay, like you said, Grandfather, Mother Earth, the Holy Spirit, okay, Wonkatonka. Mm -hmm. Tonkashila, Mother Earth. It's also Satchit Ananda from the Vedic tradition. All of that stuff is hand in glove. So the core of Christianity, the core of Native American belief, and again, you can track this all over the world, like you said, they're basically the same. Mm -hmm. I believe, and I, and I staunchly believe this, that the ability to tap into God's white light and move it through us to be a hollow bone, that is something that in the last seven years I've really dove into and I do a lot of healing work, spiritually, mentally, physically, a lot of healing work on, on people. Do a lot of clearing. You know, like you mentioned sweat lodges and purifying. Mm -hmm. A day doesn't go by that I don't clear, sage, cleanse, you know, use the four elements nice. and all of that. So I'm deep, deep into the spirituality. But at the same breath, I absolutely believe in the babe Jesus. I know he worked, walked this earth. Of course. And um, I stand in his light every day. I'm with you 100% there. I am a practitioner of the light practices, whether they come from native indigenous or Vedic tradition or Christian, a lot of Jesus' teaching got kind of contorted or misused in the Bible. And, and, uh, but his example and some of his, his original teachings, like in the Gospel of Thomas that you hear, you start to understand that he was a, a master. He, like, he was an ascended being, meaning he was um, at least the way that traditions talk about it, he, he wasn't like us where we go through thousands of incarnations on this ascendant journey. He was, a you know, just descended, like pure in that form. And that's why they say he was the son of God. But his example was to show that we're all sons of God. For me, he is one of many enlightened teachers. He happens to be one of the more profound for our generation, you know, for the last 2,000 years, to set the stage and the conditions to seed humanity with the light, to push back against the darkness, you know, which finally starting to see the fruits of his incarnation, the positive fruits, because, you know, it was co-opted and you saw a lot of negative in his name, right, over the years through the churches and all the wars and the fightings. And, I hear you. Yeah. It's come full circle and time is actually just a mental concept. And so 2,000 years is really nothing. That's just an idea. But his, um, his presence on this earth is being felt now more than ever, and the light is spreading fairly rapidly. And this is why 
institutions that are really co-opted by dark energy are, are really scrambling to hold on to power. This is why we're going to, like I said, we're going to have some serious messy times ahead because all those institutions and structures, what do you call them, corporations or individuals or families that have been hoarding wealth for centuries are like desperate to hold on to their power and to aggregate it even more. And yet there's an equal amount of light and consciousness expanding and conversations like this being had and had without any fear. You know, people listening, you either go, yeah, thumbs up, or I don't know what the fuck this guy's talking about and tune me out. Right. Either way is fine. Right. Because <laughs> this is truth. Right. But the light always wins. Yes. Right, Doug? The light always wins. Yes. Because the thing is, there really is no such thing as darkness, just the absence of light. Yes. To piggyback that story, one of my wife's relatives just finished the book. She called up and said, how did he survive? Well, the short answer is, I never thought he could kill me. I never thought my stepfather could kill me. I mean, I knew he could physically beat me to death, but he could never kill me. And it would frustrate him into more beatings and more beatings and more beatings because I would never quit. I would never surrender. But that never quit and never surrender was now I know what it was. It was that light inside of me that was, you know, I'm here for a purpose. You can't beat me. You can kill me, but you'll never beat me. I'm hand in glove with you on what you're saying. The light will always win. And the mission here is to get people to see for themselves in their own way, their light. Their light within. That's right. Preaching to people is, is useless. You know, just tell the story and let people figure it out. But I'll close that thought with this. I think you are so spot on that the growth, you know, use that word, you know, where the whole world just kind of like crashed into disbelief in the last decades in this country of ripping the word God out of everything, right? Well, now it's coming back in a hum of momentum. Mm -hmm. Nobody's really saying anything. Nobody's saying the baby Jesus is coming back. Well, because it's not the institutions that are crying it. It's just a groundswell of individuals having conversations, believing. It's coming from each person's light inside of them. That's right. They're kind of looking at this thing going, you know what? This feels right. And that is enough. And I need to stand up. That's right. And I think it's growing. I do too. Kind of cool. It is cool. So I, what I love about your book and your work is the power of healing through stories. Yes. That's the native way, right? I don't know if you even thought about that, but the native way was to heal and to teach through stories, storytelling. So that's what you're doing. So people read your story and they're like, oh my God, I resonate with this because I had something similar happen. And so, oh, wow, if it's okay for Doug and Doug found healing to talk about it, then maybe I can talk about it. And that opens the doorway to healing. I have to tell you that talking about it, I, I heard I heard those words. You got to get people to talk. You, you got to tell their story. I couldn't connect the dots. And I still am because what you just said kind of caught me a little bit. And I'm like, you're right. I mean, I, I know this storytelling in any native community, you know, it is that healing. You just helped me connect some dots. Thank you. You were a healer, you said, and um, you're a very spiritual man. Like, what's next for you? Like, where do you see your path in the next five, 10 years? Never in my life did I think I would be a, uh, you know, an author, let alone a, a published author, right? Surprise. Right? I mean, I graduated 293 <laughs> out of 313 people in high school. Right? Okay, listen. That's awesome. In book two of the crazy series, it starts out by saying there's a very angry man in a robe up on an elevated wooden platform pointing at me. Okay? You know, so at the age of 17, I was, you know, me in the military. 
<laughs> we were connected. Yeah. I guess what happened in book one, listening to everybody and asking for more, 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 I decided to say, okay, I'm going to tell these stories. So the crazy series, book two, is it's working its way through the editing system, the process. But I, I also decided to write some other books. So the next book coming out, the next couple of months will be The Mysteries at the Windham Inn. And it's based on an actual building, a historical building. And the theme behind the story is the same thing. Tell your story. It's where the ghosts that are trapped in this building, the spirits that are trapped in this building, are stuck there because they never could tell their story. Oh, cool. So now they need a live body to tell their story to so they can make that connection and move on to heaven. At the same time, you've got darkness biting at them and constantly biting at them and trying to pull them into the depths of hell. Wow. So it's a mix between real-life ghost stories. Like real stories. Real stories. Okay. That I've taken a, a tremendous literary license on. <laughs> and put my spin on it where the truth is Mary Bagshaw was the first woman hung in the early 1700s in this part of the world, in Connecticut. Okay? And she did it because of this thing that happened. Well, I don't see it that way. And here's the crazy part. I had this vision of part of the story when I first started putting it together and the ghost hunters that have been in there, you know, there's been a number of them in there. Some of the famous ones, the ones that are on TV have been in this place. And I kept having this vision of a ghost hunter picked up the wrong spirits inside there and those spirits killed them. Really? Oof. You ready for this? A friend of mine, 20 years in the Navy, Corman, lived down the road, ran the Eastern Connecticut State Paranormal, did two investigations in this, in the Windham Inn. Right when the book got released, I reached out to him and said, hey, book's out. Hand to God, didn't call me, dropped dead. 58 years old, dropped dead. No explanation, no reason. So I go talk to, you know, my mentors. He kind of looked and said, remember that dream you had? I says, you got to be shitting me. And they said, no, be careful what you write. You know what I'm saying? Be careful what you say or be careful what you wish for. Anyway, for me, um, I'm trying to mix in a little bit of fun as I'm trying to spread this out so I don't get pigeonholed into a certain genre. If you're trying to tell the story to help people talk about trauma. How do you come at this thing? So I'm trying to come at it from a number of directions. And one of the books that I kind of see through a, you know, a spiritual lens as being kind of a benchmark, so to speak, is the book I'm, I've titled A Date with Suicide. Oof, yeah. Right. Now, for the first 50 plus years of my life, suicide and me, they were constant companions in my mind. And I came very close to suicide a number of times. My faith held me off on that. But the book that I see kind of really putting some things in motion is that particular book, A Date with Suicide. It's going to talk about veterans that I knew that committed suicide, both in the military and post-military. It's going to be a raw conversation about suicide, the pain that goes along with somebody who's thinking about suicide and the creative ways you think about it. And, and frankly, Mark, it's going to talk about how many methods veterans use to commit suicide without committing suicide. Drugs, alcohol, racing, guns. Again, I'm not saying anything bad about guns. I'm just saying, you know, they'll be reckless with guns. So, you know, all of those things, you know, I'm going to swerve into the oncoming tractor trailer. Okay. All of those things. And I've heard some pretty wild stories, you know, a date with suicide. I think that book's going to hopefully really move the conversation of mental wellness onto the front burner. And guys like you and I, I firmly believe we have to destigmatize mental, you fill in the next word, 
that's why I open, you know, I talk about it so openly. I'm not bashful about saying, you know, talking about my issues. No, you're right. It has to be talked about because a lot of people are dealing with it and a lot of them are in denial too. I lost a really good friend of mine, Navy SEAL. This guy was revered in the force. He was in charge of all the instructors at Bud's. This is his last job and he did it as a contractor and uh, just no signs at all that he was struggling. And then he just offed himself one day, shot himself in the heart. You know, the only thing that I can assess is that he didn't want to be a burden to his family. You know, he was 60 years old. He thought there might be some cognitive decline. You know, he had unaddressed TBI and post-traumatic stress. He didn't, he didn't want to be a burden. A lot of vets feel that way. And this, that's, you know, you're not a burden. In this book, it's not just going to talk about the suicide through the eye of those who want to commit it. It's also going to talk about the pain. The left behind, yeah. Like I said, you know, you can you can commit suicide today, but the rest of us have to suffer with it every single day for the rest of our lives. So in that sense, it's a very selfish act. Yeah. So in this story, I'm trying to, in this book, my intent is to both tell the story from a suicidal viewpoint and tell the story from living with the consequences of our friends who committed suicide. And I'll close that thought with this. Out of the blue. Guy I served with, hadn't seen him in 30 years. Reaches out, says, hey, I read your book. Want to meet? All right. So off I go. We're bite number two into a wing. He goes, so I got to tell you, I didn't know all that stuff went on. I'm sorry about it. He goes, but uh, I was going to kill myself until I read your book. Now I can't. I'm learning how to respond to that, right? For me, I had to go back and say, so when the baby Jesus said, you need to tell your story. I guess he saw a lot more than yeah. my fear, right? That's an amazing story. Yeah. Well, when you get the um, that book done, let's have another conversation because people need to hear about that. And um, where can people learn more about you and how would you like to connect with folks who are listening? So Facebook, D. Paul Fleming. I'm on Facebook. Um, if you want to reach out to me directly, dpaul at blackhawkbooks.com. The publishing arm is blackhawkbooks. That's your imprint, Blackhawk Books? Yes. Awesome. Actually, my wife owns it. Kind of enjoying the separation of... Let her do the business stuff. <laughs> right? You do the writing. Telling you, Mark, if I could tell people two things. One, once you get done with this, the, all the crap that you got to do in life, once you get all that crap done, two great things are going to happen. One is you don't have to worry about shit anymore. Right. And two, you have grandchildren. <laughs> That's awesome. Grandchildren are God's way of saying... <laughs> I'm going to get you to come back here and do it again, okay? Yeah. Grandchildren are the best. They make awesome. it all worthwhile. If I could bottle that and sell it, we could end suicide tomorrow. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Doug, I appreciate you very much, and uh, thanks for doing what you're doing. And I um, look forward to talking to you again when you, uh, when you write the next book, Date with Suicide. And uh, I'm sure veterans who are listening are in gratitude as well. So we'll go out and get your book. 2442 Steps to Crazy. If there's any vets out there that need someone to talk to, I'm here to listen. All right. And that's the one thing I tell people. When a vet wants to tell a story, don't ask questions. Just listen. All right. That's all they want. They just want to be heard. So if you can't find somebody, reach out to me. I'm happy to listen. Well, that was a powerful, powerful conversation with Doug Fleming. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Really, really loved the conversation. It went in directions that I just did not expect. So I hope you enjoy it. And uh, if you're a vet and you found it to be useful, reach out to Doug or share this episode with your friends. Show notes will be on my website at markdevine.com. YouTube will be up on our YouTube channel. You can find me on LinkedIn 
or reach to, out to me on Twitter at Mark Devine or Instagram, Facebook at Real Mark Devine, wherever you hang out in social media. Reach out to us, let us know what you think, and give us ideas on guests or just generally connect with us. Quick plug for the Divine Inspiration newsletter, which comes out every Tuesday, where we have show notes for the week's podcast, my blog, a book I'm reading, other interesting things that come across my desk, as well as links to our show sponsors, where you can learn more about special offers they give to us. So go to markdevine.com to sign up and subscribe. Shout out to my incredible team, Catherine Devine and Jeff Haskell and Jason Sanderson, who help produce the podcast and the newsletters and bring folks like Doug to you every week. Ratings and reviews are very, very helpful. So if you haven't done so, please consider rating it and reviewing it. Wherever you listen, it helps keep us up and relevant in the rankings. Thanks so much for being the change you want to see in the world. We can do this at scale by sharing these ideas, sharing this podcast, and bringing more love and light into the world. So let's do that. Why not? Hoo-yah. Till next time, this is your host, Mark Devine. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.